we'd like to welcome you to the Institute's Leading Edge, a show dedicated to helping the automotive aftermarket service industry. In this episode, we've got some heavy hitters talking about the future to come and how it'll affect our industry. Here's what's coming up. I think the question I'd like to put on the table today is, you know, what can we realistically control, change, or influence that one and, you know, affect the industry in a positive way? The constant challenge of there's always something new. There's always a new problem to figure out. There's always a different car that comes in. That's an exciting job. It's not a, a remedial, boring job. I've done so much content, people can learn so much. But it's the, okay, I don't know what I don't know, so if I learn it, I have to actually do something about it. I think one of our biggest gaps is we're learning and we're taking in, but we're not, we're never finishing. For a better business, a better life, and a better industry, the Institute's Leading Edge. Welcome uh, to the Leading Edge episode, see if I can get this right, 29. Carmen, isn't it amazing how fast the episodes pile up? Um, just blows me away. <laughs> We're not hearing you, sir. You must have yourself on mute or something. 443 for me on Remarkable Results, 125 on Town Hall Academy. For the record, 51. I have a total of 600. Can't, can't keep track of that. I'm sorry. My, between my fingers and my toes, I can't add that many. Um, today, we're going to talk about the future of the industry, how we see it, uh, changes, and maybe some of the challenges. Uh, with us, we have uh, uh, Carm Capriato from Remarkable Results, over 600 episodes. <laughs> um, Carm, welcome. Uh, uh, we have Todd Westerlin from Kukui, CEO of Kukui. Just got um, a heck of a cash influx. Uh, uh, congratulations, uh, Todd, and uh, we need to talk. Uh, thanks for coming. <laughs> and uh, you know, certainly, it's, it's prime plus two. Yeah, there you go, baby. <laughs> and uh, last but not least, uh, Charlie Burke, who is in charge of the management uh, training and classes uh, through Worldpack. He's kind of my boss uh, when I deal with uh, Worldpack. Uh, Charlie, welcome and thank you for uh, coming. Uh, green to be yeah. on. Thank you, Steve. So All right. So our, our, our subject today is kind of the future of the industry. And I've got a couple of things that... Um, I've kind of thought about, I, I think we, we have a current tech shortage. What's the future of that? What do we need to do? Can we fix that problem? Uh, I think self-driving cars are a bit of an issue for us. And the way that the Gen X, uh, the Gen Zs and the millennials think about owning cars, uh, um, I think with the cars becoming more and more complicated, that certification and licensing uh, at some point is going to be a must for the industry. And then there's a, a couple of more. Let's, let's start uh, with the tech shortage. And I think, Carm, you're, you're probably, you, you and I have had some conversations about what's being done today and how we think that that might not be enough because there's some other issues surrounding that. At least I seem to remember having those conversations. I, I hope they were with you. Um, let's start with you. I got to a point in all the interviews that I've ever done when I asked the service professional, so uh, what's your biggest challenge? And then he would say the, the technician shortage. And I say, oh, let me get my, you know, oh, what was us? And it got to the point where I said, I'm, I'm really doing, I'm going down the wrong path. So I decided to say, so what are you doing about it? 
And to me, that was the strongest dialogue to open up. And we started to hear solutions instead of, you know, we, we have a problem, here's what I'm doing. I'm bringing on interns, I'm going to high schools, I'm joining an advisory board, I'm going to sit down with the uh, department head of the local uh, two-year, you know, post-secondary college and saying, when you find one of the, one of the young grads falling out of the dealership because they're taking all the, all the, and after two years, I'm on an advisory panel for post-secondary. 50% fallout after the dealership gets them. That's the number from our school, and I've asked all over the country. They say the same thing. Well, where are those young men and women going? Well, a lot of them are going to diesel, and they're going to government, and they're going to fleet, and they're going to all these other resources. What are we doing uh, to, to chase them back inside? And that will help part of our issue on the shortage. However, <clears throat> something that has just recently happened in my town is the independents got together with the de local department head, and I need everyone to take notes on this, and I need you to do it. And they said, listen, if you could have a Ford Asset program going over here, and you could have the Chrysler Cap program going over there, and there are 10 or 12 students, and they go to school for 10 weeks, and they intern for 10 weeks, and they go to school for 10 weeks, and they intern. Why can't we do this for the independent? And the department chair said, why not? So fall of 2020, we're going to have an independent inserted program in our post-secondary school where there's going to be 10 independents ready to take those 10 interns for those 10-week periods. Is that a solution or what, Cecil? I think it's, I, I think it's certainly um, a part of the solution. My, my issue, and my issue kind of maybe goes deeper than all of that, um, I got a call um, recently. An article popped up in Ratchet Ranch that I was um, used as the background for. I was talked to about on pay plans, um, and uh, there's a huge dissatisfaction with uh, um, flat rate currently, and, and currently a lot of the dealerships are playing flat rate. So I have this technician call me. Works for a dealer in uh, in, in uh, New York. Read the article. Um, very frustrated. Thirty-eight years, a seven-year master technician, and uh, the guy's making twenty-four dollars an hour on flat rate, and they're only giving him, you know, what used to be a six-hour job uh, on a warranty is now a two-and-a-half-hour job on a warranty. They've cut the time so dramatically uh, because they give him a tool list, and so they think that's worth an hour of their time that they don't need to figure out which tools they need and they give them this and they do that and this guy is working 60 hours a week or more and flagging about 32 to 35 in a typical week um obviously you don't know all the particulars maybe he's slow maybe he's not organized maybe but uh, a great frustration so you know, Carmen, if we bring these people in the industry, but we don't make it possible for them to be financially successful, you know, um, what good is the program in the first place? I totally um, agree with you. Todd, Todd, what do you, what, you know, you're, you're not, obviously you're marketing and all of that, but you, you got to have shops to market to, to sell your product to. And what are your thoughts on the, the technician Situation. Is it me or is it? Are you guys having a tough time hearing Cecil? 
I'm having, yeah, I think Cecil, I think you have your Facebook uh, also running, so we're getting dual feedback. So if you're and, watching and yourself and on you're, Facebook, you're very I muffled in the background. Um, yeah, I, I didn't okay, want this you, to go too can far. You hear me now? Yeah. You're still having a hard time. Give me one second. Uh, yeah, uh, check that out. I, I don't want gotta to figure out how I'm going to do this. Um, got to do it over you have here. To just, yeah. So, so interestingly enough, Cecil, um, I'll chat while you're fixing it for a second there. I went down to uh, Los Angeles this last weekend, and the traffic in Los Angeles was, I mean, it was unbelievable. It, it was, it was, I, I really have not immersed myself in the LA traffic in many, many years. And just to go a mile, the time it, it would take to do that and the amount of cars that are on the road. Um, you know, they just reported that the industry, what the industry will cross, what, $400 billion in 2020, we added 41,000 jobs uh, last year. And then we still come back to, well, technician shortage. And my biggest viewpoint on it, it's not my mission, even though I was a technician for 15 years, it's not my, I'm, I'm off on kind of a different mission, but I feel that our eyes are all on it. I feel that we're all working on it. It is a hot subject. And the more we keep talking about it, the more I keep seeing somebody starting a program trying in their school, in their college, in their neighborhood. And, you know, as a, as a large community and family of, of folks, it's a big community, but it's also a small community. My, my only thoughts on that, Cecil, is that we're on it. I think we're, we're actively working on it. My, my can, can, you hear, can you hear me now? It's yeah. better. Is it better? Yeah. Okay. Um, my, my concern is um, – you know, here we are in this industry. We got 230,000, 250,000 shops, uh, businesses. Uh, you know, they have a need for and or they have technicians. Um, but we're and, – and there are more and more cars on the road than there ever were that need to be taken care of, maintained, uh, uh, repaired, et cetera. And yet we have – we, we still have a lot of shops that are not profitable, they're not able to pay their technicians well. They're not able to provide a great work environment or the right tools. And, and so if we don't, br you know, we, we can bring the, – the number I heard was we're bringing about 75,000 techs in the industry every year. The number I heard is we're keeping uh, maybe 5,000 of those. And the other 70,000 are leaving the industry because of whatever experience they had here didn't fit, didn't work for them. Right. How do we, I mean, it, great. We got this program uh, Carm, in Carm's area. We're going to bring these guys through the new program. It's going to be called the aftermarket program, whatever it is. When they get in the shop, if there's not a way for them to be successful and make a decent living, then what's going to happen to them? They're going to go out of the industry. That's my concern. Um, Charlie, what, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I, you know, I was going to, I was going to start the, the, you know, my conversation on a deeper level of, you know, it's all about image, right? And edge of the industry. 
you know, I think the question I'd like to put on the table today is, you know, what can we realistically control, change, or influence that one, and, you know, affect the industry in a positive way? Um, so, you know, I have a slightly different perspective. I spent 30 years in publishing, Cambridge, Massachusetts. You know, I, I was never a shop owner. So I look at it maybe a little bit differently. And I think what it comes down to is the image. Now, you know, millennials and trying to attract the age group, they value their time. They value where they work uh, in a high degree. The, the shops, you know, there are 250,000 shops out there. Some of them are doing well, some of them look great, but the majority of them, you know, if we're losing kids to the oil industry, the high tech, uh, Google, and all these other industries that, that we, we can't attract these kids anymore. And so I think, I think it's even simpler than programs and things like that. And, you know, I just recently heard that Castrol um, started a program uh, you know, if you sign up to use their product and they'll, they'll give you $15,000 worth of shop improvement money. I think shop improvement is where a lot of the action can happen right now. Clean floors, AC, nice work environments, tools for the technicians, toolboxes. Um, you know, I walk into so many shops that, you know, I don't even like walking in there and, and never mind, someone has to spend eight hours there working. So I think, I think that's a big part of the problem. I, I really do think that we need to, you know, start at the grassroots and build the image up at the shop level. And I don't really hear anybody talking about that. I, I, I can tell you, I, I think I'm talking about it. Um, you know, until the shops understand how to be profitable and to, to be able to have those profits to do the cleanup and buy the right tools and provide, you know, uh, a living wage to these guys coming in. I don't know that bringing the guys in is going to do uh, as much good as it, it could do. Um, I see Todd, I see Carm shaking your head. So Carm, we're going to go to you next then we'll go to Todd and then we'll, maybe we'll kind of wrap this up and go to the next 12 subjects. Well, see, so these are all great talking points. Charlie, you're absolutely right on. It's, it's one of the things I think our industry struggles with a little too much. I've always said that there's the, top 10 or 20 percent in the industry and then there's that group below and then there's that 10 percent way down at the bottom that are always going to be thorns in our side but how do we drag that middle group forward um i i, I think you're you're right on with that i also uh, agree with you cecil on the pay flat rate in the independent side is the minimal side. I mean, there's more salary and bonus going on. And I think you probably know this to be true with your client base. And we've got to be able to convince the rest of the industry and consider things like AIC testing, um, certifications, efficiencies, uh, the training hours that you're putting in, the, the years you've been with the company, uh, the tools that you or I provide, the benefits that we give you. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways to get pay up in our business. But Cecil, the reason that you have such a great business is we can't get pay up unless the profits get up. And that's a completely different story. And I know you work so hard with your clients on that. I did a show and it was May 23rd on how can we provide our technicians a $100,000 a year pay package. It was Town Hall Academy 120. And it was eye-opening. Uh, you know, I, I had two shop owners on that uh, actually, I'm sorry, yeah, three shop owners and one technician. 
and they nailed why and how it needs to happen. An image, Charlie, it was there. Uh, you know, you, you want to be, and there are some techs that when they, and customers that walk into a place and they see the right image, they know they're going to pay and they know they're going to earn. And I, and, and those, that, that's a big thing. And oh, by the way, as a comment, you know, ASCCA has got a great program in San Diego going on, you know, the independent immersion. And, and to me, that was, that's just a, a great program, Todd. And, and Todd, what, what are your thoughts on this? You know, um, it, it, yeah, I think Charlie hit it on the head there. And it, it's really a way that we have to frame it and explain it and really show um, and, and not not knocking developers. I have a lot of amazing developers, and this is exactly what they love to do. They love to be in front of the computer, you know, writing code. And if that's not for everybody, okay, you are uh, in high school and, and um, heading towards college or looking for that career, somebody have to paint the picture that if you've been in the car biz, it's in your blood. If you've ever worked in a shop, it's it's the camaraderie. It's the family aspect of it. You know, I worked next to some folks, uh, you know, Rob, who ended up buying uh, San Ramon Valley Import Center. I worked next to Rob six feet away for eight years. So I was there when Rob got married. Rob's first child was born. Rob's second child was born. Um, you know, I mean, the talks we'd have about what cars we were going to buy. And now let's talk about the the... Um, constant challenge of there's always something new. There's always a new problem to figure out. There's always a different car that comes in. Now, if we can get that out there and, and, and we can get that, that pay right, that's an exciting job. It's not a, a remedial, boring job. There's, there's something different to do, something to figure out. There's that, you know, in the workspace sometimes, I would say there's a bigger complaint of um, just a number. You know, where's the family camaraderie? It, you know what? It is in an automotive shop. So, you know, as you can tell, it's in my blood. Yeah, there's, it. probably, there's probably there's probably some good things. I have to ask you a question, Cecil. As as the coach here, um, culture is what he's describing. He's describing and, a very good and strong culture. And tell me uh, your angle on that. Well, we we actually will give a little commercial. We're doing a culture class. I think culture is the most important thing that you have in your business. And I think culture is more than it, – it's kind of everything. It's kind of like in sales you say everything's important. I mean, do you smile? Do you not smile? Does, is, does the building look okay when the customer walks in? You know, how messy is the service advisor's desk? All of those things set your customer up – for, yes, I'm going to pay money here. No, I'm not going to pay money here. Boy, I feel comfortable here. No, I don't feel comfortable here. The, the same is true of employees. You know, we, we, we as owners ruin good employees because of inconsistencies in our, how, we, how we act and what we do in our business and, and lack of, of uh, I don't know, training in a way. Culture is... I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book, and, and I just finished the chapter on culture. And, and, and culture, you know, is defined by the dictionary as, uh, I can't even remember, and I don't, I don't want to pull it up. But in, in my estimation, it's how your people think about your company and your products and themselves within your company. Um, if they think right, they make better decisions. If they think right, they feel better. 
you know, um, I've walked in shops where you could feel the the lack of uh, happiness um, just kind of as you walked in. Uh, it was almost like a fog in the air, um, and you could see it in their faces, and you could see it in the way the shop was taken care of. Um, and then I walked in places where you can see these are just really happy people getting along and having a great life, right? You know, a, a great time. Uh, I imagine if I was interviewing a potential technician, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and I, I brought him into the place where the, the feeling was a negative, uh, there was a negative culture, negative feeling in the shop, that even though the interview might have went well, and it, I, I felt like, boy, this is the guy I want to hire, they're not going to come back to work for me because of what they felt and, and how they felt about it. Um, man, you know, if you could get the culture thing right in your business, uh, um, you know, we're, we have this commercial that should come out any minute uh, uh, that will be on Facebook about culture, about the culture class, and it, it, we had so much fun making it. Uh, it creates additional fun and culture uh, uh, within the business. Um, we need to have healthy cultures in our business, and then, you know, there's so... To, to, the, to the consultant, this is very simple. Um, have a product, match your product to your customer, match your customer to your product. Uh, uh, keep modifying your product to, to, to make your customers happy. Todd certainly could speak about that. Um, have staff that, that, that is, is pleasant and, and happy and uh, 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 feels good about your product, uh, talking to your customers. Um, charge the right price so that you make profit. Uh, when you have profit, now cleaning the shop up seems to be easier. Uh, paying people seems to be easier. We have happier people. You know, it, it, it's very simple, but it's very, very complex. You know, are we going to solve the technician shortage while there are shops or a, a large percentage of shops that are barely making a profit and struggling uh, consistently? And I don't, I'm not talking about the 10%. I'm talking about the 60%, you know? Um, are we going to be able to attract uh, great new people excited about working in, a, in, in an industry where they can be very successful, make a good living, take care of their families, raise their families, send their kids to college when we're paying $23 an hour uh, and 15 to start? Uh, 15 bucks an hour today, in my opinion, um, doesn't I can't have a, I can't have a girlfriend, let alone a wife at 15 bucks an hour. And I can't buy tools. Um, uh, and, and I'm stressed. And, you know, Maslow says that when you're stressed about your life, in other words, am I going to eat today? Do I have a place to sleep today? Uh, am I going to be able to pay my bills? You can't think about God and how do I do my job better and, you know, higher functioning things. We don't get the, the fundamentals down. We don't get the rest, in my opinion. Um, I don't know that there's, I mean, obviously, I think this is a whole conversation for a whole thing, uh, you know, for a whole podcast. I mean, we probably do this for two hours. Um, there are a lot of people that want, that are coming out of high schools and even colleges that don't have a career and they want to find a career where they're making good money. It doesn't have, I mean, they're not going to make 200000 That's okay. Not right out of the gate. But can I survive? Can I pay my bills? Uh, uh, can I do, can I have a, a place to live? Uh, uh, do I have food in my icebox? Uh, you know, can I have the electricity on? 
uh, and do I can I buy gas and pay my car insurance and, and have my car? Um, <clears throat> they're looking for a, um, uh, one of our uh, uh, Matt Post said there's not been a lot of research as to what these people really want. And, and you're right, I haven't researched it, but I, I can imagine that I want to I want to be in a place where I feel like I can be successful, where I feel like I can have a family, raise a family, get the American dream. Uh, and I want to be in a place where it matters. And I think if we look at the millennials, what the millennials do and whether or not it matters in the world is a lot bigger for them than it was for my generation. You know, we went to work and we worked. Um, that's what we were taught by our parents. But the millennials and probably even the Gen Z, they're more about, am I making an impact? Uh, am I doing something that, that, that is positive in the world uh, today? So if we can create all of those things, then maybe, maybe we can attract some good people into our industry. But how are we going to do that when we, we're not investing in ourselves, in, in our knowledge of how, you know, Carm, you do great things. You, you, someone could sit down and listen to all your podcasts and gain so much knowledge from so many people that know so much. Um, Todd, you teach. Uh, you know, I know. Uh, you do great things in your company. And, and Charlie, with Wolfpack, we're doing great things. But how do we get to that 60% to get them that next level where people, you know, it's, it's glamorous to go build computer games. It's glamorous to go work for Google. Uh, it's not glamorous to go work at Bob's Automotive unless Bob's Automotive makes it glamorous. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I don't know, maybe just a minute from each of you, just kind of see if we can't wrap up the topic here and go to the next topic. Charlie, it looks like you want to yeah, say something. So, yeah, sure, thanks. So I liked what Todd had to say about, you know, and, and then it, it kind of went um, I think all of that, I think charging what you charge is kind of falls under the umbrella of culture. Um, the, the interesting thing about, about the, the challenge, and you know, I'm gonna even call it intellectual stimulation of working on a car, complicated technology, to be stimulated like that, that's a key thing for a millennial. That's a key thing for these kids. And, and, and if they could only know that. And so I think the culture thing, I, I just wanna see these shops, you know, really kind of like, you know, excuse the phrase, but put some lipstick on the pig here. Like some of the, you know, the broken down cars, the, the, the oil containers that are everywhere and all that kind of stuff. The, the work itself is challenging. The work itself, I think, would be attractive to a lot of these, these really bright kids, you know, and, and I think that's where we, that's a good place to start. So there you hey, go. Todd? Todd? You know, I could, um, I could change a 1989 Toyota Camry four-cylinder timing belt with my eyes closed. Just got, <laughs> just got a racket. Um, actually I could rack it even with my eyes closed too. Um, so I, I, I've done so many of those and, and I, I know that. So just speaking, kind of setting the stage for experience, but I had such a great automotive experience. We would go out to lunch once a week and our boss, uh, Ian, Ian and Chris Cook would pay for lunch, but we all had to have our shirts on. And we'd be laughing and goofing around. You'd always just tell us one thing, like, be professional. Everybody's watching you. Um, you know, we'd see pride in our license plate frames being, uh, you know, you drive through the local grocery store and you, you'd see, you know, five of our license 
plate frames. We go down to the local chamber of commerce big vent event, and we would be down there. And generally, there was a couple of us uh, down there representing the, the company. This we you're, just what Charlie said. We've got to get folks to see and and keep the the great people coming into this industry. But like you were kind of saying, Cecil, we also have to teach the shop owner that you've got to do these things. You have to have this culture because I, in my mind, I was thinking, where, where did, I mean, this is a whole nother subject, so I'm scared to say it, but where does everybody go to school for being, autumn, for being a tech now? I'm going to learn from my dad. So, and then I also went to uh, Doug Mueller's tech, tech help for four years. Um, and, you know, I was ASC certified, had my L1, had my state uh, smog license in California. But where... Where where do where do people go? All I know is the the culture side of it. I keep thinking in my mind, it would be the most awesome shop. The air conditioning, the uniforms would be comfortable. We would have, you know, we'd make omelets one day. We would have a a quarterly fun thing that we would do. It'd be the funnest shop ever. And you know what? We'd be so pumped up to get the work done that was graciously put on our plate every day. That's my that's my thoughts in closing. Uh, come. Good rant, Todd. Thank you. And Charlie, <clears throat> excuse me, I was, I'm going, getting over a cold. I, I apologize. A couple of things. Uh, I have a keynote speech. Maybe some of you don't know, but I've been actually giving it this year. And it's the nine top success strategies of the service professional that I've learned in the last 500 episodes, right? First one, here's my topic. Culture rules. And so if we can get our industry to remember these two words, culture rules, and, and hear what Cecil just said about the value of culture, you know, putting your people first, uh, having fun in, inside the business, I think that, that we go a long way to creating that kind of work environment. Mike Post posted up here about little research is done asking what techs want. Well, Tom Ham from uh, Automotive Management Network has done a ton of surveys on that from both ways. What does the uh, uh, service professional expect? What does the tech expect from the job? We've done podcast episodes on those surveys. So we've kind of dealt with that. And again, to your point, Cecil, I've done so much content, people can learn so much, but it's the, okay, I don't know what I don't know. So if I learn it, I have to actually do something about it. And I, I think one of our biggest gaps is we're, we're learning and we're taking in, but we're, not, we're never finishing. And, and I think that could be a, a great point here. We've got to finish. I think that's a great topic for a future podcast, right? How to, how to implement, right? I got to write myself a note. Um, uh, all right. So uh, I, it's, it's about halfway in. We're going to stop here for just a brief uh, commercial. Speaking of culture, uh, um, July 13th and 14th here at the Institute in Ogden, Utah, uh, we have a culture clash com uh, class coming on. Uh, um, and um, everyone wants a place where they enjoy working. A big part of your success and uh, being able to attract and keep uh, good people is having a good culture. If people feel good about your business, understand your business, uh, they make better decisions. We'd love to have you at our class. You can uh, join us online. Go to the institute.com and get registered. And I believe even uh, to worldpacknow.com and get registered for the culture class. Um, uh, now, uh, there are other issues, obviously, for the future than just the technician thing, although it is a big 
uh, thing. I think there are two things that come with self-driving cars. So uh, I want to talk about two issues here. One is the complexity of the vehicle uh, as they get more and more complex. And the second is who controls the service and repair. So my image of the future is that someday there's going to be self-driving cars and someone like Uber is going to buy a bunch of those cars and put them on the road and then they're going to control who, who services them, who takes care of them, and how they're taken care of. Um, how do we, in the independent side, uh, deal with those two issues, the complexity and the ch changing of the complexity, which I also think certification licensing may become a mandatory factor in the future because of the complexity of the vehicle. Um, and, uh, and then can we have any impact on you know, the service and repair of those vehicles if we're not in charge or if it's not an independently owned car. So um, uh, let's talk complexity of the vehicle. Charlie, I'm going to start with you. As these vehicles become more and more complex, uh, obviously we need good technicians to work on them, but do you see uh, a potential for um, a lot of people dropping out of the industry who can't learn that or don't want to learn it or are, are past the point of learning that new information and does the complexity of the vehicle at some point lead to a government if you want to work on these cars you have to be certified or licensed to do so well i think certification that, that was that's a that's a whole nother topic i think that's a key element to attracting technicians in the future um you know having that accreditation having that professionalism but you know, when the when the BMW E65 7 Series came out, and I think it was 2002, I was like, that is a bona fide spaceship on four wheels. How are we going to ever do anything on this thing? You know, the networks and the systems, the technology, the, the, the hundreds of control modules. So I think, you know, moving into the future, you know, the, you know, uh, the whole is, you know, the whole is, 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 is different than the sum of its parts. I think we will be able to work on these cars i i think we'll we'll have the service opportunity will be there and then you know i mean when's that going to happen right uh you know internal combustion engine will people you know who's going to be able to drive their ferrari on weekends and so there'll be a lot of other opportunities outside of this uh you know autonomous vehicles but i i think the opportunity will be there we just don't we just don't know about what it's going to be yet I, I had an interesting conversation with my father about 40 years ago, 35 years ago, when um, carburation uh, points and condensers were going away and electronic ignition was coming in. And, you know, dad was like, we're not going to work on these pieces of crap. No one's going to get rid of their points and condensers. And, and um, you know, I, 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 I foresaw the future and I thought about some of the science fiction books I'd read and, um, you know, Isaac Asimov, The Roads Will Roll, those kinds of things. Um, cars were gone, but someone was taking care of the transportation methods, whatever they were. Um, so I think the job is there, and I think the need is there. But I wonder if the, the first time someone works on, from an independent works on one of these self-driving cars, and then someone goes and gets killed because the job wasn't done to the standard that it should have been done. I mean, we're already starting to see some lawsuits around uh, uh, cars that weren't maintained correctly, jobs that weren't done right, people got hurt. Does the government step in and go, you have to, you know, you have to 
uh, you have to have this certification in order to work on this particular type of vehicle or on this car. Uh, Todd, I see you shaking your head. Uh, thoughts around that? I, you know, my view is we're still just so far off. And, and you know, some of the concrete evidence in that is I have the, the BART train here in the Northern California, our, our mass transit, and there's somebody that is at the head of that, controlling that. And whether they just push a lever that gets it moving from one place or the, the next, there's still somebody that that human element. You take the trolleys in San Francisco, you still have somebody running those. Are any of us comfortable jumping in a plane right now? Okay, get into a plane. Let's just have the plane self-flown. We don't even need pilots anymore. Okay, if we can do drones, why can't we do that with planes? Um, now let's take the cars that, you know, in San Francisco, they had the one that ran over somebody, you know, the self-driving car. Um, I think at first you may have something where you're doing transportation of, uh, uh, you know, like UPS taking packages. So these things just leave at night and you see these odd <laughs> containers driving down the freeway that go from point A to point B and, the, the human element of somebody crashing or something is, is uh, it, it, you know, is different. Um, I just read an article, too. There was a gentleman they took pictures of who was driving down I-5 to L.A., and he was asleep. He was in his Tesla asleep, you know, and, and there's people taking pictures of him in the car, and the car's just cruising. And I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty crazy. So... I think the only thing we're going to see big change is that the term manual and automatic is going to be automatic is self-driving and manual is like, ooh, you know how to drive your own car? Wow, that's amazing. You're, oh, yeah, my dad taught me how to drive. My mom taught me how to drive my own car. Like, I, you know. You know I how to drive stick. Off. I do. <laughs> we'll drive a stick. Yeah. That'll be the question. Can you, you know how to drive? <laughs> you know how to drive? Yes or no? Instead of you might know drive a stick. Uh, Carm, your thoughts on the, the complication of the vehicle and the, the fact that these things are, you know, becoming more and more sophisticated. One of the things I love about Cecil is he asks one question in 30 parts. Yeah. So I'm <laughs> so I'm going to attempt to answer all 30 in a minute and a half. 2030 is uh, a question that I asked Joe Register in an episode just last week, episode 442, about where he thinks it's going to come because Joe Register is the VP for Merging Technologies out of Auto Care, and he's really on the cutting edge. And he said, Carm, I think it's not going to happen in 2030. I mean, so what your, your point is, is that how far out is it? Here's my recommendations or my rambled thoughts. It starts with ADAS. I think we need to be in it and we need to decide what we're going to do with it because it is here and I think it is an opportunity for us. Uh, you talked about certification. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think it's going to happen, but I think we as an industry need to do something about it before the government gets involved because then I think it'll get ugly, okay? And uh, safety inspections, I think, will have to become a rule again. They're all going away from the states. There's only 15 states that have safety inspections. And when you stop to think about the car relying on the components and the reliability and the safety of tie rods and the level of brakes and the rotors and everything... How are we going to ensure that that car's autonomous features are going to do its job if we're not 
inspecting the safety of the vehicle. I also believe that there will be business model tra uh, transformations going on. If there is going to be in 20, 30, 35, 20, 40 vehicles that are going to drive themselves into one of your repair bay, bay lanes and the computers are going to say, hey, this is wrong and it, and it moves. I've done episodes with futurists thinking about that wild ideas to think about. And here's my final thought, Cecil. Nature will find a way to keep the aftermarket viable. We've been viable for a very long time. I, I don't see us going away. I just see us changing, uh, 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 transforming. Uh, you know, when, when the points and condensers came, uh, went away, we, we transformed. When OBD-1 came out in 82 or 86, we transformed. Um, you know, and, we, when I, and when I say nature will find a way, I mean capitalism will find a way. Find a way. Yeah, we have to got to continue to take care of the, the, the kids and feed the family and, you know, contribute to the world. And this is how we do it. Uh, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, shift over um, to the, the effect of the Internet in the sense of price shopping online uh, and uh, how that affects the industry. I see more and more of that coming into play. Uh, there's a lot of commercials too that are uh, that are that are interesting. I just listened to a commercial about the new I don't know what it was Toyota or something that uh, that diagnoses itself and tells the owner what's wrong with it. Um, you know, so th th this price shopping online price shopping model, which I'm vehemently against because it takes so many other things out of the equation but we have more and more of those services uh, online and coming online routinely which is causing shops to be very conservative in their pricing um how, how how is that how do we battle that how do we as an industry take that into the future and and use it to our advantage uh let's start with todd here um you know, it's interesting. I, I think of buying, say, a car, and you go and you take a look. Let's just throw one out, say, a Toyota Camry. And um, you then look at all the different dealerships. You bring up what the pricing is. And for the most part, I mean, I can look at 10 different dealerships. The, the price is the same of that car. That car has its locked-in price. When I had a uh, had some contractors come out and I wanted to get some bids on some different uh, you know items in the house, so let's just say uh, cabinets in the kitchen. Okay. Well, interestingly enough, one contractor came in and said, "Here's how I do the cabinets." Okay, I do a little bit different, and I said, "Okay, I kind of agree with that." Another gentleman came in said, "Here's how I do the cabinets," and I thought I completely decided <laughs> I'm not working with with that that gentleman. Another one, I said, you know, um, I, I kind of, kind of liked, uh, their approach and like their culture and those, those kind of things. But each one of them were completely busy and they got caught, they got cabinets done and, but they did it slightly different. And in that same instance, I think when we're doing the price shopping, I think that you have to look at the individual, shop you have to go in and go okay i'm doing brakes i'm doing rear brakes well there was on my street there's at our shop there's probably 10 different shops now i took when we did the drum brakes 
we would actually make sure to, to do a little surfacing on where the shoes would ride there on those, those little pads. We'd actually use a, a little bit of our own kind of brake silicone there so that they kept them moving. Sometimes we turn the drums if we still had enough material. And then I would go and, and talk to another gentleman who maybe would come in and say, well, I just did a pad slammer. You know, that's what this shop did. So you can't just go, here's brakes. It's 250 bucks a wheel. That's it for everybody. But that's what's happening. It's taking away the, the uniqueness of the, what this shop does or how they do it because all it is is a price that's popping up online. Commodity. So if you're a shop owner, fight it. Uh, yeah. Dig in and fight it tooth and nail all the way down because. Yeah, stop, stop supporting this. Yeah. Not good for the industry. It's not good for you. Carm, uh, you, you had a comment. But, but it goes back to Cecil and everything that you do as a business coach in good selling systems and in good processes and systems. And all of that brings confidence that you can charge the right price and you could try the best you possibly can and not, not let it bother you that there's so much price transparency out there and services that are telling people what things cost. I, they're, they're not going away. The IoT of no, things. Not is is here and it's real <clears throat> will there be possibly a new and different way of doing business i had the chance to sit down with the the president of a very large uh distribution group and that topic actually came up amongst a panel that i was on and i uh i, I said to him i says i have an idea about it and so he asked me about it and i shared with him that i thought we may need to in the future present the fact that we're very, very competitive with all the transparent prices that are out there, but we go to market differently. We charge up 10%. The supplier kicks me back. I mean, there's a whole bunch of magic that happens on the parts pricing side, yet we have a different labor rate because, as everyone knows, if we're looking for a 15 to 20% net operating in income, it has to come from somewhere. You just cannot be a commodity pricer, a commodity shop. We, we have too much at stake. There's too much quality of reliability and safety and, and on, on all of that that exists today. And I don't think we have to race to the bottom. Now, can we solve it right now with this idea? No, but I think that, that you're bringing the discussion up. I've had a lot of it on my podcast. And, and I just think that we're going to figure it out one day down the road. And I think there's going to be three or four different solutions to how we deal with it. Don't know what they are yet. Mm -hmm. um, Charlie, your comments on, on this? Uh, yeah, uh, real quickly, I don't have a lot to add here. Um, I think the Internet of Things is happening rapidly. We're, we're, you know, we're living that way now with, with everything we do every day. Uh, I think businesses have to plan for it. You know, not an advocate of, of you know, pricing over the phone, not an advocate of, of an Internet service that prices repairs. Uh, I think it's a bad dot-com idea, you know, it's a bad business, and, you know, uh, that probably would go away. It's just highly inaccurate way to, to do any of that work. And, um, and just, you know, you know the dealerships are looking at this. You know they're looking at how to sell cars differently because the Internet's just a pervasive part of our life now. And, it's, uh, changed, it's changed their whole modeling. I mean, the dealerships, when, when I was growing up, the dealerships had profit in their cars. I mean... Today, if they make 500 bucks in, a, in selling a Toyota, they're, they're pretty happy with that. And they used to make five grand. And so when I was growing up, the service department didn't matter if it made money because they made money selling cars. 
now used cars, F&I, finance, insurance, and, and the shop have to be profitable because they're not making money selling cars. And the Internet is what has changed that. Um, I Obviously, you know, it, it's like coaching and consulting companies. You know, Todd said, you know, I like the culture of this guy. I like the way the guy talked. I like the way he was concerned. I like, you know, um, I think that, you know, you might not like me because I'm pretty direct. Uh, and I've had clients that were potential clients that didn't come to me. And I called them up and they said, well, I went with so-and-so because he seemed nicer than you. He seemed less direct, you know. You, you kind of are what you are. But I really hate this idea of, you know, more and more online shopping and the fact that we as an industry seem to be supporting that. Um, I think it's something we're going to deal with in the future, and it's going to change our industry. Uh, it's already changing our industry. What uh, if what if built in, though, Cecil, we have I, – I like this gentleman who made a post here on the, on the comments. You, know, you mentioned about the Starbucks coffee. So what if baked into my price I actually – provide a Starbucks coffee? And what if I also have a shop porter that uh, washes the car or, or cleans the windows? What if I have that in my service? You can't just give a one-stop price for all the shops on the street because that may be something that I give in my culture of my shop. I, I, so I, have I, agree with you, I agree with you 100% on that. The only problem is, is that when someone goes online, I go online and there's Todd and there's Carm and there's Charlie and they're presenting their product. And here's my product. We're going to do front brakes on your Toyota and here's my price. And Charlie's the least expensive guy and Carm's the most expensive and you're the guy in the middle. Well, what else comes along with that? I don't know. As a consumer, I don't know. All I can see is there's a price and I make a decision based on that because that's all I can see. And, and you know what I do? I don't go to Charlie because he's the cheapest guy. I don't go to Carm because he's the most expensive guy. I go to Todd more often, statistically speaking, like 76% of the time, because he's the guy in the middle, and I'm hoping to get everything that I want yeah. from that guy. And a bad decision has been made because maybe you're the worst of all the guys. <laughs> let, me, right? let me share a personal experience. I, I live in the country, so I have well water, and my my pressure tank is not well. It's 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 got to be replaced. So the, I had a plumber there for just to do something else with my water softener. And he said, Oh my God, your, your, your pressure tank is not right. He says, I'll have the company call you with a price. Well, I found out the name of this, the model that he wants to replace it with. So what do you think I did? <laughs> I did what every other red blooded IOT person would do. I looked it up online and I had the price in the back of my head. 20 minutes later, I got a call from the plumber. And the plumber said, hey, Carm, we'd love to come out and fix your pressure tank. Get, actually, you need a new one since it's broke. $900 plus labor. Hmm. The price online for the unit was $350. If he said $500 plus labor, I wouldn't have asked the price of labor. I would have said, come in and do it. But since he was $350 to $900, so my point is the information brought me some power to make a decision. And I think we have to be very worried about where we're pricing things because of that transparency. And that's, that personally hit me and I bet you it's hit every one of you the same way. Probably has. I mean, frankly, you know, the, I, I even, I find myself even pricing certain things going online and looking. Uh, I had an experience with a, the trip recently. I called a, um, 
I called a planner, whatever, travel person, and said, you know, here's places I want to go. And they called me back and said, it's going to be about six grand. And um, I was taken aback because, you know, I, 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 if I book this stuff myself, it's about two grand. So where did the other 4,000 come in? I mean, if it was going to be three grand or even maybe four grand, I probably wouldn't have argued. I probably wouldn't have went anywhere. But I ended up actually booking everything myself because of the giant difference. But they didn't tell me anything else they were doing for me other than booking the stuff. There wasn't a cup of Starbucks coffee at every location. There wasn't a, a taxi driver to get me from A to B, you know, whatever that was. Um, I just think online pricing is um, uh, not necessarily what's best for us. And I, I think that the many of the owners are being overly cautious, which is kind of dragging the rest down. You know, there's a guy online doing breaks for $149. Um, I don't know where he's buying his pads. I don't know if he's replacing rotors. I don't know if his tech is even qualified to do breaks and knows how to torque, a, a, you know, some a lug nuts. Uh, on the other hand, it's attracting a lot of people, and maybe somebody that should be 700 is pricing themselves at four, because someone else is pricing at 150, uh, and not not able to be profitable. And when we're not profitable, how do we take care of these new technicians that we want, and clean up the shop and provide benefits and uh, and some kind of glory? Uh, I I don't know. My again, here I'm ranting. I don't I don't want to do that. Um, although I do it more often than I probably should. Um, last topic, because I think we're going to run into the last topic, the, the millennials and the generation Z's are not as, um, are not as they, I want to be a car owner. I always want to drive my own car. I want to own my own car. Uh, I need to have a car. In fact, if there isn't a car outside that I can get into and go, go somewhere when I want to go somewhere, I'm in a panic. I don't have my car. The millennials and the Gen Z, they don't really care about that. They just want to get from A to B. So, um, you know, these rideshare services, these the idea of uh, there's going to be a car provided by X company, and you're going to buy time on the car like you buy time on your phone, um, uh, a, a car service, uh, especially when we do have self-driving cars that come out. Um, as we move away from car ownership, uh, uh, which I can see in the future, maybe it is 2030, but right now it's 2019, and I can remember when it was 2000. Uh, uh, that, that extra 11 years is going to come pretty fast, uh, for some of us anyway, if, we, if we're still around. Um, how do we deal with that in our, in our industry, the, the, the less and less car? I mean, a million cars on the road, uh, Todd, in, in L.A.? Um, what if they're not owned by people, but they're owned by corporations? Interesting. That's well, they still need to get them fixed. Uh, I think yeah. one of the wild cards here is that Lyft is going to put up service centers. That is really a, an interesting wild card here. That will there's, do service um, for, the service for their drivers at a very discounted rate. That's they're $95 an hour in San Francisco uh, is where they put their first service center. At least that's what I had, had read. Um, and they're going to invite public, uh, uh, and they're going to find that they can't make a living that way. But, you know, it's still going to affect the, the rest of us for some period of time. Yeah. Uh, how does a shop in San Francisco with a $25,000 a month, uh, you know, uh, lease on the property, 
uh, compete against the lift that's going to be 95 bucks an hour because they have investors that are investing. Yeah, how does that work? Um, uh, uh, Todd, your thoughts on all of that? You know, I think it, you break it down to the, the core of uh, service, and you could you could spin it in a positive. You know me, I'm always kind of looking at it from the, the positive angle. So, um, you know, my son, before he had a, a license, he used Uber. Sometimes he needed to get places. He just used Uber. And, and as crazy as that is, I mean, I'm not necessarily a fan of throwing my son in a taxi. That wasn't my favorite. But he definitely used Uber and Lyft. And there was something about him jumping in a clean BMW and cruising to the mall and coming back that was okay. That created more mileage and it created more service for that vehicle. When I was growing up, it was just you, we jumped on our pedal bikes. That's all we had. And so interestingly enough, that has created more work. Now when we talk about, well, could we go and rent cars? Um, when we drove to LA, we drove our own car. When we were, when we got to LA, we actually used an Uber to go downtown some of the areas just because parking, driving through it, I didn't want. I just wanted the Uber to pull up, drop me off, and get out. So I used both, okay? Um, I think that, as always, there is things where it kind of shifts. We have this view, and then suddenly it goes in a direction we didn't think of. And there's going to be a little bit more of pride in ownership of your own vehicle. You know, you're going to have people go, because I've seen that in some of the things where people are leasing or renting, and then I've seen that um, they go, well, that was great, but now there's even a new push to own your own vehicle. So I think, like you said, what, 2030, we might, you know, it's going to brave new world, brave new world. The, the pendulum seems to swing back and forth you know it is kind of an interesting having been in the industry for geez 40 plus years at this point in time um it keeps going down every time you say that hmm. <laughs> yeah lower and lower and lower it, well it, you know todd's the guy that always looks at the positive side i'm the guy that always looks at the negative side so i need todd around so he can balance me out a bit and keep me level um uh, all right so we're you know obviously i I could do this for hours. It, it seems like these things go so fast. Uh, we're getting towards the end. We like to end with uh, what would you tell the shop owners that would be online uh, uh, or that are going to watch this in a podcast about the future? What, what do you want them to know uh, about the, the future? You know, your best prediction, uh, how they, how they, uh, they can help themselves out or uh, just, hey, guys, it's going to be fine. Um, we'll start with uh, Charlie. Charlie, last comments for the, the audience. Okay. Well, you know, I think the future, I mean, let's define the future. So whatever that may be, a lot of, you know, a lot of our shop owners are aging out. Uh, a lot of them are, are you know, ready to uh, uh, sell, their, sell their shops. So, Certainly, advice would be to get ready and, and make your make your business saleable. Do whatever needs to be done to um, to get the you know um, times three times four EBITDA uh, that you need for your for your place. Um, uh, for the for the technicians that are taking your shop over, education and training for those guys that they're out there and they're they know how to be professional. They know how to run a business. Uh, a lot of these shop owners now are 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 
they were techs, you know, and they, they, the School of Hard Knocks, they've done it. They've done really well. I can't tell you how many shop owners I've met that I'll verbatim and paraphrasing, like, I've done pretty good for a kid that never went to college, you know. So, so education and training for the, for, the, for the young guys taking over, if it's your children, if, 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 um, if it's one of the techs that, are, that wants to take it over. And, um, and then let's, you know, the, the, let's control what we can control, and let's, let's get this image of our industry a little higher, step by step, slowly. Um, it, it honestly, people do not have a good impression. It's a grease monkey. I mean, Snap-on is still putting like greasily smeared technicians in their ads and, and things of that nature. So, so let's do that. Let's, let's try to make these professional. Let's attract. I think the work is is. I mean, I I love working on cars. I love the technology. I love solving complicated problems. It's it's difficult stuff. And and I it's it's, you know, the millennials will enjoy that kind of work. So, they're they're um, that's my closing statement. All right. Um, Carm, I see you writing notes, and I know when you write notes, I'm in trouble. So um, what's your closing statement, sir? Here's my note. <clears throat> um, here's my closing statements. Become a leader. And I, I don't think there's anything more that you can do um, than learn leadership skills, read some books, uh, test yourself, find a coach that a that excels at leadership, improve your soft skills and in your whole entire team, build a family team, become a profit guru. You can't do any of this stuff without having money, hire a business coach, you know, I'm a big advocate of that. And as Charlie just said, and I so totally agree, improve your image. Thank you, Carm. Uh, Todd. I would say the branding, culture, marketing, if you're not an expert in that, Find somebody that's an expert. Very simple. In my town, I have four coffee shops. Two of them are Starbucks and two of them are independent. Which one do you think I go to? Absolutely go to the independent. And they know my name. They have a little bit of a different brand. Um, they have even some different syrups they put in the drinks that are probably not the, the down to the penny, the perfect profit margin. Maybe it's slightly, they lose a little bit and maybe the big box coffee chain would never do that because the pennies in that profit of that syrup is not there. You know what, the, the independent coffee shops, the two in my city, one on each end, they're excellent. So just, just keep focused in that. Thank you very much, guys, for participating, uh, Carm, Todd, and Charlie. Um, uh, if, you know, culture becomes so important, it's almost a lot of what we talked about, uh, you know, culture of excellence, uh, culture of education. Uh, um, if we have a good culture in our business, we bring other people in, they get, uh, they drink the Kool-Aid and, and uh, become part of the team and are on the, the thing. Again, reminding there's a class July 13th and 14th at the Institute on Culture. You can find us online at the Institute at ifrave.com. You can check out other episodes by going to the Institute's Leading Edge at podbean.com or on iTunes or Spotify. Uh, once again, thank you. And if you'd like to turn in uh, subjects for future Leading Edges uh, in the Institute at ifrave.com or Facebook, we'd appreciate your input. Uh, guys, thank you very much. Have a fantastic uh, weekend and July 4th coming up. And uh, we will be talking to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks. Guys. Hey, guys. How are you planning on spending your 4th of July weekend? Learn how to get your free time back with our next episode about becoming an absentee owner. 
Subscribe at institutesleadingedge.podbean.com so you don't miss out. Or find us on Spotify and iTunes at The Leading Edge. Join the Institute group on Facebook and get advice from other top shop owners as well as our experienced consultants. Brought to you by the Institute for Automotive Business Excellence. Thanks for listening. 